Welcome to World of Dads, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Oren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph and GP of Flex Capital. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Sam Corcus. Sam is the co-founder and CEO of Levels, a health monitoring startup. Sam, welcome to World of Dads. Good to be here. I'm really excited. Now, we're going to get into some of the health stuff in a bit, but Levels operates in a bunch of very unusual ways. And I'd love to talk about it first. You're building in public, you're remote, you're asynchronous first. One of the things that sets Levels apart is the way you use virtual assistants. First, let's dive into that. I've got a bunch of other questions, but how do you use virtual assistants at Levels? We leverage VAs a lot. I would say about half the people on our team, maybe more, have access to an EA. And they're able to get a lot of leverage on their time. I'd say a big category of work that EAs do is help with things like reporting, accountability. They often do first drafts of things. It's a source of labor that is less expensive and really just gets more leverage out of every person on our team. So we have an EA pool where if you don't have enough work for a dedicated person, you can hand off tasks to this pool of available talent. And then at some point, if you have enough work, you get a dedicated EA. Maybe that EA first just supports, let's say, the whole sales team. And then maybe it works for an individual salesperson or something. Yeah, if at some point they end up with enough work or there's enough context necessary for them to work effectively together, then we just dedicate one specific EA to them. I would say I think we have about 20 EAs that we work with, and I think five of them are in the general pool, and the rest of them are dedicated. I think I personally have three or four fully dedicated just to my tasks. As more of these tasks build up, we add more resources to it. And presumably that EA is working, let's say, 40 hours a week. So you've got 90 to 120 hours a week of things you need help with. What are some maybe non-obvious examples of things like you use EAs for? One broad category that I have found is really helpful. This is maybe a bit of an esoteric explanation, but I find that working with EAs is really helpful in entropy management within an organization, which is... As organizations get larger, as communication pathways get more complex and diffuse, it's really hard to keep track of whether processes are being followed, whether things are getting done effectively and consistently, whether balls are getting dropped. And I found that using EAs to monitor things, send me reports so that I don't have to, these tend to be things that I either was doing in the past or I just wouldn't have capacity to do if I didn't have EAs. So they really help with that. So like go to Jira and look at this thing and see if this was checked in and then let me know if it's not or send an email to the person on my behalf be asking for a status or something. It's exactly right. Okay, wow. <laughs> it's exactly something like that. Or go and jump into Salesforce and review this. And if the report's not in this band, I want to know about like that type of thing. Yeah. Some of those things you would think you could automate, though. You would think you could set up a Jira alert or Salesforce alert. You would hope so. I would say in a lot of ways, they fill in the gaps of bad APIs, where if you just don't have software that can do this, I would say some of them, the software can get you 90% of the way there. So a recent example from yesterday, I got my monthly report on the status of our engineering documentation. And 
In Notion, there's a new thing that they added somewhat recently called validation, where you validate that it is still up to date. I think once a month, my EAs go through and they check all of our engineering documentation. And everyone on the Eng team agrees that it's good to have up-to-date documentation and that we should maintain that standard. And this is internal docs. Yep, that's right. And oftentimes, all you have to do is look at it and say, yep, this is still valid. This is still up-to-date. And then check it off. And so they went through and they checked. They noticed that quite a number of documents were out of date. There's an owner associated with those docs. And they said, hey, so-and-so, it's time to review this document. And they might even go as far as to lock time on their schedule to review it, just so that they know that they have capacity to do it. So it's just making sure that we're keeping track of these things and we don't drop balls. They tend to be really good for things like that. But there's lots of other stuff we use them for. So let's say you have internal, most of these, you have internal documentation, which could be like engineering, or it could just be HR, your internal 409A share price or something like that. And you might want to keep up to date. How's it work on Notion? You have an owner from the company. How does that work? That's exactly right. There's a field in Notion wikis called validation. You say it needs to be validated every 90 days, every 120 days, whatever the cadence is. And then people go through and you just check and make sure that it was up to date. And every document has an owner. And so when people transition out of the company, you transfer ownership to somebody who's still at the company. And is that easy to do? Do you have to find or replace everything or is it just a simple transition? It's pretty simple. I don't know if you can do like a bulk replace, but people tend not to own that many documents. And I'd say that one of the most common things that happens during these review periods is people deprecate documents. This document is no longer relevant and you close it out. So that's another big part of the process, because as anyone knows who's worked, even an organization that's even, I don't know, 12 people, pretty quickly, you end up with a lot more documentation that is just out of date. The documentation loses relevance and value because it's really hard to know what's even still being used. Yeah, updating every month, then it may not have any value or anything like that. Yep. And they do things like, I have found that it's really useful to send context a couple days before any call that I have. So my EAs will send our latest investor update, maybe some podcasts that I've done, more information about me, about the company, so that people can come into the conversation with a little bit more information than they otherwise would have. I would say probably the biggest time saver for me, which also improves productivity, is I have a Notion doc every day that has pages for each of my calls, and they do pre-call notes. So they find the person on LinkedIn, they provide their background, they have a screenshot of the email or whatever communication method we had, so that I can come into the call and it's like, John Smith, who is John Smith? And I can see, oh, contacted me on email, here was what we talked about, here's the nature of the call, here's more information about them. And then some follow-up items at the bottom. And they sometimes can even do those follow-ups themselves. So it really helps me just quickly understand who they are, develop context, and also not drop balls. Like, is that done two days before so that one day before you can review it or something? And then you get that email from them being like, oh, it's ready for you to review. Here's the links or how do you know when to review it? So I just have a page, Sam's calls. I just know to review it. And it just links out to each thing because like, let's say you have a call with Orin. We may have had many calls in the past and you may want to have an Orin page. So it links to the Orin page. It wouldn't link to the Orin page, but it would link to the specific page for the call that we had that day. 
And that page will eventually go into our meeting notes database. And so you could potentially link it to other related calls. What it is being useful for is when you have back-to-back calls and you're shifting context all the time, it's really hard to know. There have been a few calls before we had this process where I would have a call with somebody named Matt. And there's a lot of people named Matt. And then I would get five minutes into the conversation and realize I was talking to a completely different Matt than I thought I was talking to. (laughs) (laughs) So having this sort of process really helps with that. Yeah. In the Zoom world, for sure, we've all had those types of things. I think people are interested because I think even people who have a full-time EA in person may not even know how to use that person effectively, whether it's a virtual EA or an in-person EA or how else can one use EAs effectively? Is there like a guidebook like, hey, here's how you use EAs? I don't think that's something you learn in business school. I wrote an article in First Round Review that might be helpful to add to the show notes of some concepts on how to effectively work with EAs. I think one of the conceptual things is really think through all of the things that just suck your energy throughout the day and figure out a way to offload those to somebody else. I would say first decide whether that thing needs to be done at all. The answer is often no. People just do things out of inertia because they've been doing it for a while. Eventually, you get to a point where you keep pushing it. I would say a really good indicator of this is if you have something on your calendar that you're supposed to do, but you find that you keep moving it to tomorrow and you've been doing that for two or three weeks, that's probably a thing you should figure out how to delegate because it's clear that it's not something that you enjoy doing. For me, it's things like managing LinkedIn DMs or Twitter DMs or all these different communication tools that I have that I just don't have the capacity to stay on top of. You get a lot of LinkedIn DMs and Twitter DMs. I get extremely few. Yeah, I get quite a lot of them. I would say that the quality of (laughs) the ones that I get is very low, but every once in a while I get one that is really valuable. So similarly with email, filtering out email, at this point, my EAs have enough context on what is relevant for what I need to do. So they're like triaging your inbox and stuff like that. Yep. Okay. So that's another one that they do that's pretty effective. And are they moving something to another folder for you and you just review that folder, but you don't review the actual inbox or how does it work? Yeah, that's right. There's a label, which is just Internally, it's just not important is what the label is. And they just tag things with that and it gets put to a different folder. And I basically never look at it at this point. But early on, I would check it and see every once in a while it was something that would get missed. Okay, got it. So if it's in the inbox, they flag what's important. They more like flag what should get out of the inbox. Yeah, and it's possible that the better strategy is the other way around, uh, flagging as important. Filtering email is one of those things that I still don't feel like I've solved from an internal communications perspective. It's just such a lossy system. Figuring out how to solve that is hard. And then I imagine that there's a Notion doc that this admin owns about how to run this process, and they have to keep that up to date every month. That's right. And what's interesting about it is, especially in the way that we do it, is we use Loom pretty religiously. And for those not familiar, it's a screen recording tool. And all of the time that they spend filtering out email, they are recording on Loom. And then they post it on the process doc page. So if a new EA comes and wants to figure out how does this work, they can actually watch every single time every person has ever done this task. And they can just learn by repetition, just by watching how other people do it and pattern match. I think when it comes to working with EAs, 
almost everybody I've talked to dramatically overestimates the complexity of the tasks that they're doing. If you can just watch a loom of somebody doing a task a handful of times, most people are able to replicate that task with 90 plus percent accuracy with very, very little context beyond just seeing what they were doing. Obviously, with your emails, you might get very, very confidential things that are in there. Are you somehow shading those confidential things out or editing those things out in Loom, or are you just not worrying about it? To some degree, the answer is just not worrying about it. There are things that are actually confidential, and there are things that people assume are confidential. A lot of this depends on the culture of the company. We're pretty aggressive in the degree of transparency that we have. And so the only thing that we really consider confidential, other than the obvious ones like ongoing legal cases, the only thing that we have that is just consistently confidential is compensation. Things like individual performance, almost anything else is something that we share with the broader company. So we're pretty open about it internally. And I noticed you recently made a change where before individual performance was deemed confidential. Now, the default is that it's open. Maybe there's like specific items there, sometimes having a specific personal problem that remains confidential. Why did you make that shift? So a few years ago, we, and by we, I really just mean me, wanted to be more open with how we run our business. And by open, I mean both internally and externally to different degrees For example, we share all of our investor updates. We share all of our weekly all hands publicly. They're posted on our YouTube channel. Including revenues and stuff and expenses. Yep. Revenue, expenses, all of that stuff is public. On our website, down on the footer, every investor update since literally the first day of the company is available. And you can see what our revenues were in month one. We published those after a one-year time delay. I got it. Okay, interesting. The main reason is just that we realize that there are certain pending items in our investor updates that probably ill-advised to make public while they're pending tends not to be the case after a year. We're working on this top secret product, and then six months later, the product comes out or it didn't work or whatever, then it's okay for people to know about it. Yeah, that's right. I think it's important for every company. We have five co-founders at Levels, and I've been through this before of starting companies, being a co-founder, and I've made this mistake before in the past, is not being super clear what it means to be the CEO of the company. For every co-founder that we brought on, I was very explicit that no matter how many co-founders we have, we have one CEO. And so if everybody else believes one thing and I believe another thing, we're doing the thing that I say because that's how it has to be in order for this to work. This is not a democracy. And so the shift to this level of transparency was one of those things where I really just had to push it through. I would say some people were neutral, some people were strongly against it, but everyone was willing to disagree and commit and feel it out. And what we found is that the level of transparency internally was really helpful in terms of building trust within the company, because people knew that what we were saying was truthful, we weren't hiding things from people. And sharing them externally also built a lot of trust with our customers because one of our goals is to become a major trust provider within healthcare. It's a category that is really lacking in trust. And so when people can see that we're super open, we're honest with everything that we say, it builds trust with your customers. So that's been another one. It also builds trust with potential recruits and employees. It's been a major, major source of value for hiring. 
to answer your specific question, this transition that we made maybe six months ago, which was we used to exclude individual performance and compensation, and now it's just compensation. All individual performance, including one-on-ones, are default shared. It doesn't mean they're mandatory shared, but by default, they will get shared unless you say not to share a specific recording. The shift really came from recognizing that so many of the things that we want to do as a company and the level of openness and trust that we had built was really incompatible with hiding individual performance, where it felt like people out of the blue would lose their jobs for performance reasons. And people would say, I really wish I knew because I totally could have helped them on that issue. And it requires a super high level of trust to have a conversation in a one-on-one where I say, Oren, right now, we often use the keeper test from Netflix. You know that one? Explain it. It's a really good heuristic for working from the space of feeling. The keeper test is you close your eyes and you imagine this person is sitting across from you. Let's say you have an employee named Mike. And Mike comes to you and says, Oren, I have bad news. I decided that this is not the place for me anymore. And I just accepted a job at Google. And then you reflect on how you feel. And if you feel relief or excitement that they're leaving, that is a bad sign. (laughs) The keeper test is you should feel terror. You should feel like, oh, man, we really need this person. I would fight really hard to keep them here. And if you feel anything other than that, they need to know that immediately. And you need to figure out how to get to the point where you're excited for them to continue working there. And so we've had times where I've said to people in the one-on-ones, you do not currently pass my keeper test. This doesn't mean that we're firing you right now, but it does mean that unless we figure out how to get to a point where I'm confident that you're adding value and that I'm happy for you to be here, ultimately, this is not going to work out. And that meeting gets shared to the whole company. And then people often jump in and say, hey, I can help with this thing. I can help with that thing. It really requires a super high level of trust. And it's a bit of a leap of faith. And it could be that doesn't pass the manager's keeper test, but there's many other people in the organization that would go nuts if this person left because they are actually valued. Maybe the manager doesn't see that. Maybe that could be helpful if other people let them know. Absolutely. It requires a certain culture and a level of trust within an organization. This is definitely not something that I recommend everyone try. It's been working for us because we set that expectation from day one. Now, because you're so transparent, I'm sure at some point you guys had a big internal debate about whether you make compensation public and you've decided not to make that public. How did that go down? Because I could see every argument you make just going the same way there because I assume compensation is very reflective of how someone's performing. And if you rank ordered the compensation in the company, it would very, if you include stock, would probably very clearly match the value that that person is to the company. It's very possible that we end up at some point making compensation public. It's one of those interesting things where there are some case studies, Bridgewater being one of the obvious ones, where increasing transparency, visibility across meetings, performance, all of these things have added a lot of value to the culture. Bridgewater does not share compensation data. In fact, almost no company that does this shares compensation data. There are a handful of examples of companies that do. And the people that I've talked to at those companies have said it was terrible. (laughs) And so I don't have really any positive data points that come from sharing compensation data other than 
if you should make compensation data shared within the company or public, it just becomes a constant source of tension of why does he make $5,000 more than me? I think I'm better than him. It becomes a huge distraction from the actual work that needs to get done. It's possible we end up there, but there would have to be a reason to do it beyond just in principle, we want to share everything. Got it. I could see how all these things would cause a lot of angst and stuff like that. Even why does this person get a better performance review than me or something? When it comes to pocketbook issues, it's even more so. Now, going back to the assistance, most people don't know how to manage assistance. How do you train your staff to manage them? Part of the answer is working with an agency really helps with that because they do most of the training themselves. We work with Athena. They're an agency out of the Philippines and they're on the more expensive side, but they also do most of the training themselves. They do the cybersecurity training. They teach the EAs how to be more proactive so that you don't have to teach them how to do it yourself. We also have an internal program where We've had a couple people lead this internally at different points in time of the internal delegation program. This is another one of those entropy management things where I get a monthly report on how many delegations somebody has done with an EA. I'm sorry, and the EA, Athena provides you that or is that just something they do by default or how does that work? No, we ask them to do it. The main reason is that the math is pretty simple in terms of how much leverage you can get from your EAs. If you have a person and their effective hourly rate, especially if you factor in opportunity costs, is something like $200 an hour. And if the EA is $18 an hour, any amount of time that that executive is spending doing things that could be done by an EA is just a straight loss for the organization. And so if I notice a trend, an executive on the team has zero delegations several months in a row, it is extremely improbable that they have no tasks that should be handed off to an EA. And so oftentimes what we'll do is we'll find somebody on our team. Right now, I think it's Zach who runs legal for us. He's a really good delegator. And we just have him spend some time with whoever that person is. And we say, let's go through your day-to-day. Let's figure out what your tasks are. And then we try to increase their awareness of how to delegate. Most people just don't even know where to get started. And so it, it takes a lot of practice. Okay, interesting. In some cases, people might use Upworkers for very specific thing. I use this person for this, but of course, getting someone up to speed takes a lot of time. And so the good news about using Upworkers are very, very specific about this thing. They know how to like do this type of thing on Google Sheets or make this type of zap on Zapier or something like that. But what you're saying is there's also something about having a long-term relationship with somebody where they get to know you and they might not be an expert in any one thing but they can like slowly take on things over time. That's right. And the more context they have, the less specific instructions you have to give. You can be more declarative and less imperative. So for example, we did something recently, which was fun. In fact, I have them right here. I stole this from one of our investors, Wiz, where I made magic cards for every person on our team. That's so cool. Yeah. And there's a custom flavor text based on an interview that they did internally. We take images of them. We put those through mid-journey to use their face and then turn them into a wizard. And it was very cool. And it took me about 15 minutes to define that entire task. I explained where to get the data. Why would you even do that anyway? Why wasn't that someone else in the company? Like, Why is the CEO even assigning that task? Yeah. So I think part of the answer is I had the idea. You just wanted to do it. You're like, oh, this would be fun. Yeah, it'd be fun. Exactly. And 
in any other world, I would have probably had to say, all right, if I actually want this to get done, I have to schedule a meeting with somebody on our team who is not an EA, and then I have to teach them how to do it, and then they have to figure out how to do it. It would have been a huge time suck. And basically, the answer is it just wouldn't have gotten done because it would have been so much effort and so much cost. But instead, it took me about 15 minutes. It took the EA a couple days. They followed the task. They had enough context to know where all the information was and what my intent was. And they were able to do it pretty quickly and get it turned around. Now, some of the tasks that you have need to be done very real time, maybe during US business hours. Some of them could be done async, or maybe even there's a benefit for them being done over the nighttime. I know most of the virtual assistants that you use are in the Philippines. So do some work US hours and some work Philippines hours? How does it work? They work different schedules. My recommendation for anyone doing this has always been try to have some synchronous overlap. I think my primary EAs overlap with me until about 1 p.m. They're synchronous until about 1 p.m., And then there's a couple others that are maybe fully asynchronous because sometimes when they need access to a two-factor authentication key, if they're always in a different time zone, trying to coordinate that is a huge pain. So having some amount of overlap is way better than having none. Are they coordinating with each other? Is there like one email address and somehow they all read that or how does it work? The EA pool is done through a Google group that we set up where everyone in the EA pool is part of that and you can just... Send. Is that something you figured out or is that something like Athena's like suggested for you? That's something that we figured out. I don't know how common the EA pool concept is, but it's definitely something that we make a lot of use of. The other is when individuals, in my case, I have three or four, we try to have a primary EA who quarterbacks these things. They do a little bit of the load balancing and they also know what skills each of the EAs have. And so they can quarterback who the right person is to do each task. Okay, got it. That makes sense. I would imagine that one thing that EAs can do an amazing job of is things for personal things, not just things like at your business like levels, but things personal. How do you use them for like the personal stuff? It depends a lot on whether the EA is in person or whether the EA is remote. Even if they're remote, I'm sure they can get someone and pick up things and do, right, so. Yeah, for sure. I would say for personal stuff, this is sort of, uh, we'll call it work adjacent as an example for something they do for me is they keep track of my calendar and they categorize each task and they send me a report on what my priorities were for that month. And so this is, time management, it's somewhat personal, but also related to work. And that just gives me a feedback loop on whether I'm actually spending my time on the things that I state are my priorities, which is really helpful. There's an accountability loop there. They can do things like help you with your taxes, if it's something that's really taking up a lot of your time. Getting all the things in one place or finding all the stuff or categorizing things. We've had a lot of internal conversations about this. There's admittedly a gray area on what is or is not reasonable to use a work EA for in terms of personal tasks. Obviously useful and clearly acceptable category is you need help delivering something that adds value to work right now. Makes total sense. An obvious no is you have a side hustle and you're using your work EA to do a thing that generates you income completely unrelated to what you do for work. Well, it could save you time, and that time could be dedicated to work. Exactly. 
it's like, hey, can you help me plan my vacation? Is that, it's like, well, kind of, <laughs> because it would have taken me three hours and I would have otherwise been working during that time. That's very much a gray area. We just ask people to use their judgment ultimately. If you would otherwise be working during that time, then by all means, use an EA. They get you two hours more of work. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, totally. So we ask people to use their judgment. Part of it is because we have such a good accountability structure around keeping track of all the tasks. I wish I could remember which company does this, but one of the companies, they had an issue with people expensing things that were personal to their work cards. And their solution, instead of creating more and more policies, which they'd been doing for a long time and didn't seem to solve anything, they just put every expense gets posted publicly in a Slack channel. That's the only change that they made. Basically, what they ended up creating was a system that if you would ultimately be embarrassed by people seeing what you just expensed on the company card, then you probably shouldn't do it. God, it's just like Mike spent $10,000 on a plane ticket. Okay, maybe you shouldn't have done that. Yeah, it's like an extreme outlier. That's interesting. Everyone else is $300 and then Mike was $10,000. I wonder why that is. Now, you guys are also just generally very async. I'm sure you have some meetings and some synchronous stuff, but you try to do everything async. I think a lot of companies wish they did that. How does that work? Async is really good for certain types of tasks. It's less good for other types of tasks. I think the answer is that ultimately it's a trade-off. I would say that remote and async are really closely tied together in a way that I don't think everyone fully appreciates. Even if you have everyone in the same time zone remote, you're saying more async is really important. Okay. Yeah, remote and async are, they're almost synonymous. And if you have one without the other, it's really challenging. It's not ideal to sit in meetings all day in person. You can get energy from those. If you're working with people, you feel the energy in the room, you get the body language. There is nothing more soul crushing than sitting in Zoom calls all day. It's just not the same. 100% agree. If you lean into the worst parts of remote, which is you're not physically co-located and you don't get energy from other people and you insist on keeping the same structure of synchronous meetings, your productivity is going to go down, your energy is going to go down, output's going to decrease. If you can lean into the fact that every meeting that you have is ultimately content. If we were having a Zoom call right now, this would just be content if we recorded it. You can record a loom and you can send a video to somebody asynchronously. I think most of our engineers looking at their schedules have something like three meetings per week. And so it depends a lot on the role as well. Obviously, if you're a salesperson, you're having external, but you don't need to have a lot of internal meetings. That's exactly right. And so it really works better for certain types of roles and certain types of companies as well, depending on what it is that they're doing. So yeah, async is really valuable in certain aspects. I steal this quote from Matt Mullenweg from WordPress. He says, you should be as async as possible, but not more. And I think that's where people often miss on some of these things is they assume only async is the answer. But the reality is that there is a time and place for co-located, for high bandwidth, low latency communication to get that level of alignment that's necessary. Sometimes it's like, okay, let's just get on the phone and talk for a couple of minutes synchronously. Totally. Is there some sort of template you have for meetings that means it have to happen synchronously? I assume there's some async buildup of the template of the agenda of 
does everyone who follows a synchronous meeting use the same template in the organization? Broadly speaking, the answer is no. There are certain meetings that are more formulaic. Our Friday forums, the team all hands, it follows a routine, which is we announce at the beginning of the meeting, this is where we celebrate our wins. We have Monday metrics where we present all of our business metrics. We dig into them a little bit more. We do a lot of our projects. We do these kickoff meetings where we bring everyone who's working on a project together synchronously to just formalize this project is starting now. This Friday meeting you have, why does everyone have to be on it live? So we've tried doing it async. We've experimented with a lot of these things. The reality is just that the intent of the meeting is to celebrate wins for the week. And what we discovered trying doing it async for several months is that the whole point of the meeting, which is to bring energy of like positivity. Yeah, like clapping everyone. It just falls completely flat when it's async. We realize that that meeting has to be synchronous and we try to get as many people to go as possible. Now, if it's synchronous, does that mean most of your employees are in the U.S.? Most of our employees are in the U.S. This is another piece of feedback. I wish I could remember who specifically gave us this feedback, but it's somebody who runs a much larger remote company. And we asked them, if you could do it all over and you were our size, what would you do differently? And they said, we would have set clear time zone expectations no matter where you live. Because where they ended up is they effectively run three different companies that have different meeting schedules that are completely independent. They have Asia, Europe, and the US. And they have to coordinate these as three separate entities. And they said, if I could do it again, I would say, no matter where you live, you have to be available in America's time zones, which is basically California to Brazil. If we need to schedule a meeting as a team, that's the time zone we're scheduling it. If that means you have to stay up late or wake up early, that's up to you. That's a choice that you can make. There's some core hours, let's say 9 a.m. Pacific to 1 p.m. Pacific or something like that. That's exactly right. I think that those are the actual core hours that we have is 9 a.m. Pacific to 1. It might even be 8 a.m. Pacific, but yeah. Okay, that makes sense. The fact that you guys are so public and so open, are there downsides that you've had to work through? There are a lot of, we'll call them theoretical downsides. There are a lot of risks that people perceive. I don't think that we've experienced any real tangible downsides other than people concern that something might happen in the future. There were definitely some investors that opted out of the process going forward. One of them accused us of negligence for sharing all of this information. Uh, It's more of a philosophical difference, I think. I can imagine from HR related things, you might be doing a training or not doing a training or something like that. Like I could see how those things could end up being both positive and a negative. Totally. It's HR, legal, those sorts of things especially when it comes to sharing all of our one-on-ones within the entire company and having everything recorded. There were a lot of people in legal, their hair is falling out just hearing that that's something that we do. But the reality is that it builds trust. It makes it a lot harder for people to create false accusations. Because if you say X and Y happened in this specific meeting, we have the recording of that meeting. We know whether it happened or not. Are you recording it on Gong or Zoom or something? It's on Zoom. Okay. So you just use the cloud recording on Zoom. That's right. And then it's just easy to search. You're having some sort of the Zoom AI is writing the notes on it. There's just a toggle at the organization level of default record on Zoom. And so we just turn that on. It's worth noting that this is not a suicide pact. 
So we're not saying all meetings must be recorded and all meetings must be shared. We've just changed the default behavior, which is unless you say otherwise, or unless you turn off the recording, just by default, all these things will be shared. Loom integrates with Zoom. Sometimes it's hard to get these names correct because they sound so similar. (laughs) You can port all of your Zoom meetings into Loom, and then you can share the embeds and other things through Loom. So that tends to be the strategy that we use. There's lots of ways you can do it. Okay, I didn't realize that. So you can port the Zoom meetings into Loom because you can share clips easier or something like that. And the Loom UI is easier for that. Yep, that's right. Getting to levels, because I love your company. We've talked a lot on World of Das about data used for health. Obviously, you're tracking things like glucose and other types of things. I personally find tracking some of this data for my own health a bit overwhelming. And I get a bunch of blood tests and stuff. And Sometimes I don't even know what I'm really supposed to be looking at. Outside of blood sugar, what do you track personally? So this is an interesting challenge. What we've learned over the course of building this company is that we measure almost nothing in our bodies. When you compare it to any sort of mechanical system or a software system, there are 50,000 sensors on every Falcon 9 rocket that goes to space. If you wore every commercially available sensor known to man in terms of what's a consumer sensor, you're really just measuring blood sugar, which is the only molecule that we can measure in real time, heart rate, skin temperature, and you're using a gyro to measure your movement. And that's about it. So three of those are superficial, literally, they're outside of the skin. And one of those is a molecule. And there are tens of thousands of molecules in your body that you'd like to be able to measure. I try to keep track of things like Blood sugar is a really useful one because for me, it's really been more lifestyle driven rather than health driven of why do I have brain fog in the middle of the day? It's often because of something that I ate. Things like movement is a really important one. Although I work at levels and this is a health company, I'm not a super optimizer. I'm not a biohacker. I'm really looking for the 80-20 of how do I not die a premature death and how do I maintain energy levels throughout the day? So Some amount of movement is really important. Some amount of weight training is really important. I think you mentioned after you maybe eat a lunch, you just take a walk around the block or something like that. Yeah, even a 20, 30 minute walk has a really large measurable impact on how your body responds to food. So if you're doing like a call, you'll walk while you do the call or something? Yep, exactly. Protein is another one. Almost everybody does not get enough protein throughout the day. Keeping track of how much protein you're getting. What does protein do for you? Because sometimes I've seen this thing of the amount of protein I'm supposed to eat, and it's like, (laughs) I never eat that much chicken. (laughs) Yeah. I like chicken, but it's not that much. I think the biggest one is around muscle mass. This is what Peter Atiyah's new book really goes into much more detail. His book is Outlive, where he talks a lot about one of the strongest correlates to longevity is muscle mass. And if you lose muscle mass, you tend to die early. The ability to build that muscle is really reliant on having enough protein in your diet, uh, among other things. So most people, I think, get about half as much protein, if I remember the data correctly, as would be optimal. Protein is one that I, I try to optimize for. Steps, just generally speaking, movement is one that I keep track of. It's a little bit challenging because I've noticed a trend when I'm in programming mode and I'm just writing software. I tend to get 300 steps per day, which is really, <laughs> really not good. And what it's I'm doing like you're calls, going from the bedroom to the kitchen or yeah, something. <laughs> exactly. 
I average triple digit steps during programming days, which is not great. Not good at all. When I'm doing days where I'm taking calls, I'm doing other things, I tend to get 10 to 20,000. So it's much better on those days. Are there certain calls you're taking literally audio only? Mm-hmm. That's right. A lot of like, say, one-on-ones, if I don't feel like I need to be at my computer, I'll just take a Zoom call because they're recorded, but I'll just do it audio only and go for a walk. Okay. Got it. Interesting. You're really saying for the average person, instead of is everyone's tracking, whether it's VO2 max and like, you know, 17,000 other things and they're getting blood tests every, I have friends that are getting blood tests every month or every three months or something like that. In some ways you're saying, okay, that just doesn't fit the 80-20 rule. If it's interesting to you, and if that's the level of optimization that you're going for, 100% it's useful. The challenge with a lot of these blood tests is they're useful to give you point in time measurements. There's this concept that we've talked about internally. The concept is biological observability. This is a level of depth I don't normally go into, but because you have a lot of data nerds in your audience, I think it might be useful. This concept comes from observability theory broadly, which is the mathematical dual of control theory. The reality is that you can't control a system unless you can observe what is going on in that system. And observability theory is about how do you observe signals coming out of a black box, assuming that you will never be able to understand the core mechanics of that system. You're just observing signals coming out of it. How do you know what is the state of what is going on in that black box? So if you imagine you're trying to model metabolic state inside of your body, but you only have the occasional, oh, you took 10,000 steps today. Is that really enough to know my metabolic state? Probably not. It's like, well, look, here's your glucose data. Is that enough? Probably not. How much data do you need for that? It turns out it's a lot more than the measurement tools that we have today. And so in observability theory broadly, there are, I would say, three primitives of data, metrics, logs, and traces, which anyone who's done software development is familiar with a stack trace with metrics, with adding a log. These are all the same concepts. And you can apply those here, which is point in time measurements are metrics. So when you get blood work done, you have a point in time. The problem, as anyone knows, and who knows what you even did that morning. Exactly. It's highly, highly variable. You can get trends over time. And you can say, in general, I can see this number is creeping up. But what you really want is a trace. You want to understand cause and effect. I did this thing, which is leading to these outcomes. I ate peanut butter and I did this, or I did this workout, or a lot of people do monitor their sleep. That's a common thing today where people are wearing some sort of thing to monitor their sleep. How do you think about that? The way that they monitor sleep is ultimately a computation based on heart rate and skin temperature and things like that. It's a downstream metric. Or how much you're moving or something. Yeah, it's a downstream metric of the superficial metrics that the sensors pick up. There are only so many fundamental pieces of data that we're able to collect. And so almost all of the other things that we do around strain, around recovery, those are all derivative measurements that are just based on the same underlying data points. A couple of personal questions. I know you're pretty hardcore minimalist. I heard on the Tim Ferriss podcast, you said, I don't know if this is true that you only own one or two pairs of pants or something. How did that evolution to minimalism go there? I do have only one pair of pants. That's true. So what do you do when it's dirty? Are you just walking around in your undies and stuff? Or, yeah. I think one aspect is, so I have a pair of pants. I have one pair of shorts. I'll wear the pair of shorts when I need to wash the pants. The reality is that pants don't get dirty as often as people think they do. 
Yeah, I'll wear a pair of pants for a whole week sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes my wife and my kids make fun of me, but I'm like, it's not that dirty. Maybe I put a little mustard on it, but it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. There's a lot of assumptions that are baked into these things of what if this, what if that. I remember I did a long backpacking trip with a friend in China. And when we arrived, he had two suitcases. He had planned for every possible contingency. What if we go hiking? What if we go camping? What if we end up in a mountain? What if it rains? And I brought one small backpack with stuff. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he was like, what if you need to do laundry? He brought all the stuff to do laundry. It's like, you know, people do laundry in China. <laughs> it's like, it's like, what if we go to the ocean and we need flip-flops? People go to the ocean in China. They have these things here. You don't have to bring your entire life with you all the time. Got it. So it's just like, oh, you'll just buy it if you need to, but why have it? And okay, I'll just buy some flip-flops and maybe I'll have to throw it away, but it's better than always traveling with those types of things. It's an interesting thing because people really over-index on disposal in terms of environmental impact. And they massively under-index on consumption. People will buy useless stuff all the time. They'll buy an extra house. They'll buy this. They'll buy that. The environmental impact, however you want to quantify it, of the excessive consumption is at least a thousand times more than the pair of flip-flops that I wore for two weeks and then gave them away. People just ignore the consumption aspect of it. Is there some sort of minimalism laugher curve like, okay, too much stuff is bad, but too little? How do you know where to go? I mean, I know that while we're taping this, you're very close to having a baby, first baby, which congratulations. So by the time this airs, you may have one. And I know that once I had kids, my stuff accumulation started going up dramatically in my house. How do you think about, is there some sort of heuristic to figure that out? The answer is there is some lower bound. It is much, much lower than most people think it is. <laughs> yeah. I have one pair of pants. I have three shirts. And I realized that I wasn't using one of those shirts very often. And so I went down to two shirts. And then I realized, actually, sometimes I need three shirts. And so now I have three again. Turns out that was my lower bound is three shirts. And you own a suit? So yes, I have a suit. My assistant who's based in the US has my suits in her closet and she FedExes them to me when I need them. And then I just send it back when I'm not using it. Oh, so you have an assistant in the US as well? Yep. I have a tuxedo and I have a suit and they're in her closet. She just sends it to me when I need it and then I send it back. I really view it as more like a costume. And why not keep it in your New York City place? What's the value in having your suit? Because sometimes you just need it and you're going to a wedding and you just need it there. It turns out it is very rare that I have a situation where I need an impromptu suit. If I don't have at least a couple days of lead time, the worst case scenario, I go to a Goodwill and I get a jacket for $30 and then I wear it to the event and then I just give it back to them when I'm done. The overhead is not worth it for me. Okay, I love it. Another personal question, I know your wife and I'm a huge fan of hers. You went from meeting your wife to being married in an extremely short amount of time, which I know is very rare nowadays, maybe even in history, it's very rare. Besides for the fact that your wife is awesome, what was your decision making for being able to make that decision so quickly? There was actually a specific process and calculation that I did with this. Of course there was. Yeah. <laughs> Are you familiar with the optimal stopping problem? Yeah, of course. N over E? Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. It was surprising for me to learn 
that this is actually a mathematically solved problem. <laughs> I think this was actually a piece of advice that I heard you give that people generally overvalue optionality. They, I think, don't know about the optimal stopping problem where they think that the optimal is to wait until the end before they make a decision. But the reality is that you actually have to wait 37%. That is the correct answer. It's hard to know what the N is. It's 30%. Do you have to date 100 people? Do you have to date three people? It's hard to know what the N is. Since time is finite, you can do the math on this. If you say something like, I want to be married by 35 years old or something, and I can only date X number of people during that time. Yep. It's like, I can only date X number of people during that time. And you say the N is, all right, turns out the N is 60, which is actually a lot more finite than you realize. (laughs) Okay. In the optimal problem, then you would have to date 22 people, decide specifically you're not going to marry any of them, which is weird for them. And then (laughs) you marry the best one you meet after that. That would be in the mathematically optimal case. I think in my case, it was more like doing the math made me realize that I was already past the 37% mark. (laughs) And so I'm running out of time in my life to make this a reality. And so on each of my first dates, I would tell people that my goal is to either be married within six months or to have broken this off. Some of my dates ended on the spot, (laughs) which is reasonable. Yeah, yeah, reasonable. (laughs) And others thought that that was a reasonable approach. So it's a matching problem, not a sales problem. And did you have a list of things or something? Okay, Okay, I have this criteria. And basically, if you hit eight of the 16 criteria, I'm going to propose to you and hopefully you'll say yes kind of thing? Or I put together a one-pager of what I was looking for in a partner. And I usually shared it on either the first or second date. And this was another one of those things where sometimes they would read it and say, this is definitely not me. One of the first things I had in there was that open-mindedness is something that I've learned is very important to me. I need somebody who can be friends with a Biden voter and a Trump voter. Whether you agree with either of them, it doesn't matter, but you have to be able to be civil and have a conversation and recognize that there are things to learn from everybody. And sometimes people would look at that and just say, this is not me. I could not do that. And that's okay. Some of those I'm actually still friends with and they come to my salon dinners, but it just would not have been a good match long term. The specific example for Varya, my wife, was I showed her the one pager on our first date. And then on our second date, she showed me her spreadsheet that she had made <laughs> with 64 points of what she was looking for. And I realized like, oh, that was a first. So that was a sign. <laughs> I assume in some of those, maybe that particular one was a deal breaker thing. And, and somehow you knew that that was a deal breaker. Whereas maybe you have other criteria that were definitely pluses or maybe other ones that were negatives, but they weren't deal breakers. And you're not going to get someone if you have 20 things, no one's going to hit all 20. How do you know, okay, these were the deal breakers and these were the nice to haves or something? Maybe you don't want to marry a smoker, but like if they're great and just happen to smoke, okay, you'll still marry them. I did a lot of reflecting and I wrote down a lot of things and I spent some time with friends to help consolidate some of these ideas. I ended up with six things that were really the only deal breakers. Okay, so you have to have all six of these things. But I can imagine even with six, it's hard for someone to have all six or at least Maybe they're 50 or 60% of the way there on some of them, but they're not 100% of the way there. Yep, for sure. Yeah, and so there's always compromise at each stage. I think the reality is this ties into the optimal stopping problem, which is I have enough exposure to the world to know how likely is it that the next person that I meet is going to be at 100% for all of these things. And just being able to, this ties into 
recognizing that I can continue to expand my options indefinitely and then I die. <laughs> so at some point, you've got to stop and you have to make a decision. This is awesome. Now, you and I are both huge fans of throwing dinner parties around one topic of conversation. We've been to each other's dinner parties and I've learned a lot from your dinner parties. How do your dinners work and what are some of the best practices you think for throwing a dinner party? I've been hosting these for years. I've done well over a hundred of them. There were a lot of lessons learned. I think one of the biggest ones that's probably the simplest to implement is that the size of the group matters a lot. I think six to eight is probably the optimal number if everyone is really engaged. So that means you kind of have to invite like 10 and then some no-shows happen. Yep, that's exactly right. I usually invite 10 to 12. I try to aim to have 10 people because you can't always guarantee that every person will be super engaged. You tend to end up with that number of people is best. I've tried increasing it to 14, 20 people, and it does not work. It's just way, way too many people to have a single conversation at the table. You're the facilitator at your own dinners. You need to have like a real facilitator who knows how to facilitate the conversations. I would say that I'm a pretty ruthless moderator. I've experimented with a lot of different things. I've tried to let the conversation just flow in whatever direction it's going to go. But the reality is people all came there for the topic that was scheduled. And so if you end up going in these random tangents, nobody's happy. Always trying to find ways to pull the conversation back to the topic at hand is really important. Being mindful of conversation monopolizers is another one to just be aware of and try to make sure that the people who are quiet, trying to find ways to engage them and bring them into the conversation. Just calling on those people. I think one of the other fundamental aspect of hosting these dinners is I've tried hosting dinners on topics that I was optimistically interested in, but didn't actually care about. Every time I've done those, they've fallen flat. You have to personally be super interested in them. Yeah, that's right. For some people, when they go to their dinners, they let everyone know who's going to the dinner ahead of time. And then there are other dinners where it's like, you just have to show up. So they're going on some faith of who's the, how do you think of one versus the other? I would say it's highly relevant to the intent of the dinner. I host about once a month, I do founder dinners, which is only founders talking about the real hard things that founders go through that they can't talk about with anybody else. For those dinners, you say who you are, what your company does, how many employees you have, because that's the most relevant thing for everyone else to know. But do people know about that even before they show up? Yep. But also it's useful in the intros just to set context because it's relevant for you to know, is this other person in the same category as me? How many employees do they have? How is that relevant to the problems that they're experiencing? In the salon dinners, I try to keep it as low key as possible, which is usually just your name and the last book you read. Those are the two things that I have people say, because if it turns into a status competition, which certain people who went to certain Ivy League schools seem to have a problem following those rules. But if you just keep it to your name and the last book you read, it sets everyone on the same playing field where you can have really experiential conversations about people's life, their history, and you don't have to measure them based on how they compare to other people in the group. What if people want to connect afterwards? After the dinner, you say, okay, by the way, here's the people who went. You should reach out. How do you do that? Yeah, yeah. People have the list. They're on the calendar invite. If you wanted to do your research, you could figure out who everyone was. It's okay, got it. You could see who's coming on the calendar. You can jump in and you could email them if you want to and say, hey, Bobby, you were so interesting. I'd love to connect or something. 
my EAs at the end of the event send a follow-up to everyone and say, thanks everyone for coming. Here's everyone's email address, connecting everyone here for follow-ups. And so they do have access to it. It's really just about level setting in the space that we're in. Two last questions. One is, what is a conspiracy theory that you believe? I don't know what the specifics are of this conspiracy, but I'm confident that it's real. There's something going on with insulin prices in the United States. I don't know who is behind the conspiracy. Prices are super high. The price, it is a thing that has been off patent for going on 100 years now, and prices keep going up. And that should not be the case. It seems like nothing else follows this pattern. But for whatever reason, insulin prices keep going up, at least in the U.S. And that's not true in other countries? This is a United States phenomenon. Oh, interesting. Insulin prices, I think insulin was discovered maybe 80 years ago. It's been a long time. And yet the prices continue to go up. Are there only one manufacturer of it or are there many different? There's a few. There's just a small handful of them. They have some price conspiracy or something. What I've read about this, it seems like a major abuse of patent law seems to be the reason why these prices continue to go up. The outcome defies what I think should be happening in this. Should you and I get in the insulin business and start <laughs> putting things out at 10x the cost? Yeah, one-tenth the cost. There are people working on that right now. It's totally plausible. Awesome. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? I think one, especially for younger people, which I've seen the consequence of this, is people say, work smarter, not harder. And I think it's bad advice because the correct answer is work smarter and harder. I think most people don't work hard enough in general. And so saying that they don't need to work as hard, they just need to work smarter is just wrong. To deliver really incredible value, especially in a startup, you're not getting there on a nine to five. It's going to require a lot of effort, but you also should work smarter. I would say it's generally bad advice. I would 100% agree with that. Certainly, at least in my experience, the best people I've ever worked with are highly correlated to those who worked most number of hours. Sometimes I think maybe I was ultimately better able to motivate them for whatever reason than I was somebody else. And so it's not clear, not only because they worked the most hours, but just they were more passionate. I don't know how to correlate these things somehow. Yeah, for sure. I don't know that someone, if you're not passionate, you said like at the dinner party, didn't like it in the first place. If you weren't passionate, it's hard to motivate working those really hard hours. Some people like what they do for work. Some people don't. I find myself just incredibly fortunate that my hobby is writing software. It just happens to be a thing that industry values. If the thing that I liked doing was playing guitar, I would have a much harder time with it. But I'm just very lucky that the thing that I do for fun is also something that is beneficial financially. Okay, this has been awesome. Thank you, Sam Corcus, for joining us on World of Das. I follow you at Sam Corcus on Twitter or X or whatever we call it. And I definitely encourage our listeners to engage with you there. This has been a ton of fun. Awesome. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider reading this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D A A S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. 
World of Data is brought to you by SafeGraph. SafeGraph is geospatial data for physical places. Check it out at safegraph.com. And by Flex Capital. Flex Capital invests in data companies like those we talk about at World of Das. Check it out at flexcapital.com.